is central to understanding Christianity, thus it's central to all of life. And we've been working through it. We're landing the plane there. And obviously there's so much more we could talk about. It is, it is an ocean um, that we will swim in, not just as we're breathing on this side of earth, but into eternity where we're just unpacking, unfolding the layers of who God is as father. But what we've said is there's some shifts that we have hoped to take place. And, and in conversation with a few of you guys, I'm like, I, like I've seen, I feel like they have. And so we want to praise God for what he's done. Let me, let me read them off. We said that, man, we wanted to move from fear-based to grace-based. That it's not the fear like in that, like that, that terrified, scary, I'm, I'm afraid you're going to do something to me type that moves us. But it's the grace of God. He, he calls us in. Uh, we want to move from selective obedience to sincere devotion. I don't pick and choose what I want to obey. But I'm like, man, God, like I trust you, so I'm just going to get after it. Whatever you say, your will above all else, though my purpose remains. I love that song. Uh, to move from anxious toil to rested work that um, really God has a call for all of us. That's actually going to be today. And instead of just busying ourselves and, and being anxious and restless, but to live and work from a place of rest in our identity. To move from passive participation to active pursuits that we're not just sitting back and hoping stuff happens to us. But we were locked in, dialed in, we're in the game, and we're getting after, and we're trusting God to be faithful to who he is, a father, central to all of life. And the fatherhood of God is experienced by being a child of God, which we said not everybody is. That's okay, because everybody can be if they want Jesus. And so not everybody is a child of God, but everybody has the opportunity to be a child of God by believing in the Son of God, Christ, and the beauty of his life, death, burial, and resurrection to bridge the gap between God and us so that we could walk in newness of life, experiencing God for who he is, that we are children because of the Son, Jesus. And we're able to experience all of the benefits that we read, Psalm 103, all of the benefits that he talks about, Ephesians 1, in Christ. And what we've walked through is the way that God now treats us is the way that he treats Jesus. And we get to experience this unique relationship with God that he fathers us in a very profound yet purposeful way by giving us a secure love. That we don't have to earn it. We can't lose it. We can't undo our adoption, our dignity that we have as being children of God. We can't lose the love of God. Everlasting to everlasting, it's secure. And Neil masterfully walked through Luke 15. We can come back home even when we mess up. But not just the secure love that we have, we have a strong hope. That means that the, the bottom of our lives where suffering invades, where struggle captures us, it seems to bind us, isn't the end. That regardless, and it's not to minimize suffering, we're actually going to talk about suffering in about five weeks. It's not to minimize suffering, but it is to lift our eyes off the here and now to the then and there and say there's a future that's secure, that's strong, that produces hope, that invades the here and now. And Carlos crushed it. 
leading us through Romans. And people like text, yo, can we keep him? No. Uh, you know, unless you pray hard and maybe he'll change his mind. But even then, God has called him to plant. But he, he led us through. What does it even look like for God to just walk with us with a strong hope? And today we're landing the plane knowing that God doesn't just father us by giving us a secure love. God doesn't just father us by giving us a strong hope. But God fathers us by giving us a significant purpose, a significant purpose is how God fathers us and we walk out our identity as children. I would submit to you guys that this conversation around identity is a conversation that isn't new, but it feels like it's taken center stage in our cultural moment. Who are you? So um, one of my recent favorite films, this feels like a long intro. Let me just go ahead and say that. I didn't realize it was going to be that long. feels like a long intro. I promise we're going to get to the text. But one of my recent favorite movies is um, a movie called Black Panther. Uh, right? you know, and not just for the culture, uh, because it's great cinema, right? Take that, Martin Scorsese. You know how he wrecked on Marvel recently? But anyway, and so um, in Black Panther, uh, the theme throughout the entire movie is who are you? Right? You know what I'm saying? And so you have the challenge. It's challenge day, right? And so you have the challenge. You know what I'm saying? And like, tell them who you are. I am Prince T'Challa. You know what I'm saying? And he, so, he, so he's telling them his identity. And then, you know, so like, you know, <laughs> Michael B. Jordan comes in and he has all those bumps on him. And then he comes in. And he's like, ask me my name, right? You know what I'm saying? It's like, who are you? No joke. And he's just, so it's the whole, the whole movie thematically is identity. And what it gets at is this idea. I'm Nigerian, so I could do the accent, praise God. But what it gets at is this, this idea that, that like understanding your identity brings a type of liberation, yeah. right? It's like, so, so like once you know who you are, you don't have to prove who you are anymore, so you're able to live more freely. Does that make sense? And so we understand that pragmatically. We do not understand that spiritually. But once we know who God says we are, our identity, the one that he gives to be enjoyed, not earned, then we're able to express it more freely. We get liberation. But knowing who you are doesn't just bring liberation. It also brings direction because tied to identity is design. It's direction. It's purpose. You were made for this. I, you know, I say this all the time. iPhones make terrible Frisbees. Like it, it, it could work like that. But that's a waste of $300, maybe $700 if you don't have the plan, right? It, it's a waste. But man, when an iPhone is working as it should, functioning as it was designed, man, it's great for texting, it's great for phone calls, it's great for Netflix. It's a terrible Frisbee, are you checking with me? So inherent to identity is design and direction, it's purpose. It's what something is not just is, but made for. What is something called to be? The identity that God gives his children is tied to who Jesus is. And what Jesus says about his identity in terms of expression and purpose is profound. John 17, 18, he says this, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is, this is Jesus talking. He's getting ready to die. And as he's getting ready to die, he is going to the Father in prayer, looking up to heaven, eyes to the sky, saying, God, I'm praying for these people, and not just the people who are here, but the people who are yet to come. I'm praying that you would make them one. I'm praying that you would keep them. I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world. I'm praying that you would preserve them in the world. And 
as you've sent me, I send them into the world. Now, he's talking to God. He's saying, this is an identity I'm, I'm giving them as sent ones. But he's not just going to talk to God about it. He's going to talk to um, his disciples about it. John 20, 21 reads like this. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So Jesus has just raised from the dead. He has now revealed himself multiple times, walking, breathing, living Jesus. Not a ghost, new body, foretaste of what's coming. And he's, he's revealed himself to the disciples and he says, peace be with you, shalom, wholeness, health, wholeness, beauty, with you. But as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. You see what happened in there? The sentness. Like, like, the sentness of the children of God by God the Father is the significant purpose we all long for and look to. This is the purpose that all of us want. We don't know it yet. Hopefully we'll see it by the end of Matthew 5. But it's the purpose that Jesus gives. Sent into the world as I've been sent. What was Jesus sent for? He was sent to rescue. Seek and save the lost. Bridge the gap between those who are far off and the God who wants them. What was Jesus sent for? To heal and shepherd and lead and guide the harassed sheep who existed because of terrible leaders? He was sent for both of those. And what's fascinating is he says, as, as I was sent by the Father, you who are now my brothers and sisters in this thing called the family of God, I'm sending you. You are sent. Now, the reason we're in Matthew 5 is because though that's the, our significant purpose, the, the purpose we were sent for, God has made us for, the, the manner in which he sends us, or sends us, excuse me, matters. It's not just that he sends us, it's how he sends us that matters. And when I think about how he sends us, I really can't think of a better image um, that really is an expression of an identity other than Matthew 5. Um, Corey read it with his deep voice. It was like very enriching. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like stirring my soul. You should uh, read more often, but I'm going to read it um, through and then we'll take it bit by bit. The, the movement of the remainder of our time is we're going to look at each one of these um, statements of identities, these imagery statements. We're going to look at them and then we're going to bring them all together. And so what does it mean to be this? What does it mean to be that? And how do they pull together something beautiful for us? Matthew 5, 13 through 16, it reads like this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God's word is blessed. Let's... That was a slurp. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I didn't think it was going to slurp like that. There's a new cup, so I didn't spill. Wow. Can we edit that from the... Appreciate you, Will. 
Praise God. It's going to be like a random blank there. Uh, it was good to be home. Uh, let's, let's, let's get to work. And so um, Matthew 5, 13 through 16 is situated in what is famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so when people talk about the sayings of Jesus, they may not get with Jesus, but they could communicate and regurgitate a lot of what's found in Matthew 5. You heard it say, now I say unto you. Don't lust. Blah, blah. So people kind of just could throw those out. But the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is a, a reorienting of the people of God's perspective on who God is and how life should be, specifically the expression of the law, Old Testament law. And so what will Jesus will do in the Sermon on the Mount and really the rest of Matthew, what he's going to do is he's going to whittle the law down to two commandments, that you will love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And the expression of those commandments are going to be like, yo, you heard it say don't kill. I'm going to one-up you and say you need to investigate your heart and make sure there's not hatred being harbored there because you will kill somebody in your heart before you actually do it with your hands. And so he is going to will it down and then expand it. He's glorious. And so where we have now is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is coming off of what is known as the Beatitudes where he starts, he's redefining blessing. Blessed is not just, we talked about this a few weeks ago, it is not just these circumstantial pleasures that you get, nor is this, this financial freedom that you may attain, which isn't bad. It is not the sum total of blessing. And he is redefining blessing, but he's redefining blessing not just for everybody generally, but for the people of God specifically, the people who are in on this truth that he is God in the flesh, Christ. And so while there are thousands of people surrounding him, the way Matthew 5 and 6 is really intended to read is not just necessarily to the thousands who are listening. They're in earshot. They're ear hustling. But what we're meant to see is that Jesus isn't necessarily speaking to the thousands and the masses. He's speaking to his own. It's very personal. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. And so when you get here to this now 13 through 16 um, verses, it's you are the salt of the earth. Not them over there. You, child of God, salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not them over there. You, personal child of God. Furthermore, what's very fascinating is this is a, it's a plural you, which, which means that it's not just individually you are the child or, or salt of the earth. It's you all, y'all, we are the salt of the earth. Not just individually, you are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Now that matters. I'm going to emphasize that a little bit towards the end. And it doesn't diminish the individuality of it. But it does matter to say that it's not just about us individually, but our purpose is collective. The significant purpose that God gives his children is meant to be expressed in the family. That's going to come out later but he starts off and he's like let me let me bring it close to you to to my to my people my disciples those who are in on this those who are who are walking with me man you have this glorious identity salt to earth now salt to earth um first thing that may come in in our minds is tony saturis lauris yeah um, you know, put that in there, make the potato salad good. Um, and, and it's seasoning, um, not Karen salad, but it's good salad seasoning. Now, in light of that, that was from T'Challa again, it was a callback. Now, 
unpack what it does mean to be seasoning, but I, I feel like we have to say that that's not what they would have heard first. His Jewish audience wouldn't have thought, ah, Lowry's, let's make this chicken better than bland. That's not, that, that's not what their mind would have went to. You know what I mean? It, their mind would have went to, okay, salt of the earth. What do we use salt for in this Jewish space? Ah, we use salt to heal wounds. We use salt to preserve decay and prevent it. We, 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 we use salt as a preservation and a healing agent. Does that make sense? And so because they didn't have refrigerators, if, if they wanted to preserve meat, they would, they would salt it. They would bathe it in salt and it would, it would prevent decay from happening. So it would last longer. Make sense? You track with me? And so, so, they're, so they're hearing this and they're like, okay, salt of the earth. Wow. We are preventing something from happening. Because implied in this image is an assumption that there's decay happening all around us. Does that make sense? Now, we don't need to argue that. We just need to walk out these doors. And then we're, we're, we're just rushed with the brokenness of our city. Price gouging everywhere. Corruption. Man, do you know how much foreign drug money floods our city every single day? Having all the conversations with people. Do you, do you know how that skyline was built, which is glorious? You watch a Netflix documentary, you find out every, yeah. It's crazy. So much decay all around us. People who, who, who are longing to be held by someone who they've, they've entrusted their life to and they've called them spouse. You're my wife. You're my husband. Only to have some side piece enter in and say, nah, I have a better situation. Does that mean, like there's this decay all around us. They would have known it as Jewish people living under an oppressive regime, Roman government. And so they hear it and they're like, okay, salt of the earth. We are preventing something, but it's prevention through producing. And so it's the prevention of decay by producing justice. That's going to come out. Let your light shine. Good deeds. So it's not just what you don't do. It's what you actually do. Thus, the second part of this salt imagery, which is the seasoning. It is the savor. Now, this flows right in line with who Jesus is. John 2, right? So in John 2, Jesus' miracle by turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana which he's always going to be known for. And he comes in and there's, 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 there's no more wine. It's, it's ran out. He, mom comes to him and he's like, yep, we, we got this situation. What do you need from me? My hour has not yet come. He's thinking about the gospel in the midst of this marriage celebration, which is fascinating. And he's like, all right, fill up these jars, water, keep the party going. And then they drink this wine and they're like, oh my God, this is better than the wine that was in the beginning. And, 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 and what that's meant for us to see is not just that Jesus is cool with alcohol. Yeah, because somebody's like, well, the alcohol contact, we could make that argument. I'm not going to make that. I don't really, it's, it's irrelevant for this purpose. But it's meant to see that Jesus is Lord of all creation and he is Lord of joy. He brings the better wine. So he brings what's missing and what's lacking to life thereby enhancing life, thereby producing greater experiences of delight. Can I just say Jesus is not anti-joy? 
He is anti-fake joy. So you know my marriage story. Um, you know that I'm a foodie. First year of marriage, man, like, like it was fascinating because my wife didn't make my mom's eggs, but you know, we got over that part. Um, but there was one part that stung me a little bit more than the eggs. And um, it was, we actually leaving Miami um, for our honeymoon, coming back uh, to Texas at that time. And, um, you know, she's amazing. And so she was making me breakfast and um, I smelt this aroma of greatness. Um, and then I, I walked in uh, to the table and laid before me was this glorious banquet of eggs. Not my mom's, but they were good. Um, and some, some pop, pop, like hash browns. It was, it's great. And then these strips of bacon. I tasted the bacon. I was, I was like, what is this? I said, like, what is this madness? And, you know, and, and she was like, oh, that's turkey bacon. I was like, that exists? Like, why? Who would create such a foolish thing, right? Yeah. And it, it smelled like bacon. It looked like bacon. You know what I mean? It had a little squiggly to it. Yeah. But it didn't taste like it. It tastes like cardboard because it wasn't a real thing. That wasn't, a, that wasn't you know, because my wife can't cook it. She's a beast. But it's because turkey bacon It's synthetic. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a, it's a fake version of the glory, which is pork. And in the same way, amen, um, amen, not Muslim, amen. And in the same way, in the same way, like, you know, like God is an anti-joy. He's just anti-fake versions of it that are really turkey bacon in disguise. And then you're like, wait a second, I was expecting the real thing, Right? You know those moments where you do something that you thought it was going to produce something in you and for you, and then after, there's that aftertaste of shame. You're like, man, that didn't, that didn't really produce what I thought it was. It's because it's turkey bacon. It's synthetic joy. It's not, it's not able to produce the life and the delight that God would have for you, have for us, by being the salt of the earth. So uh, to, to summarize, to, to, to be salt is to prevent decay and produce delight. And when he says you are the salt of the earth, he's saying that is your purpose. That is who you are. And that's what you were made for. Prevent decay and produce delight. Um, we'll bring that back. But, but he doesn't just say that you are the salt of the earth. He, he, he makes this, this profound conundrum. Like, yeah, like if salt loses its taste, like how can it be restored? It's good for nothing. And there's different ways you could take that. The way I'm going to take that is this idea that an identity that's not expressed is an identity that doesn't exist. Even though some would say salt can actually lose its taste and that it's worthless and you throw it out under, like I'm just going to take, I'm going to take that way. And, and so let me just go ahead and say that now. Verse 14, um, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. Um, and, and, and so, 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 so you're not just salt of the earth, preventing decay, producing the light, but, but you, you are the light of the world. Now, now, all throughout the scriptures, there is this unison um, between light and life. That light doesn't just give sight, it gives, it gives life. If I could blitz you with some scriptures. Uh, verse thir- Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life. This is the psalmist talking about God. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Um, Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Um, John 1, 4, in him was life, speaking of Jesus, and the life was the light of men. 
um, John 8, 12, which really brings a different level of oomph to this statement. He says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you see, do you see that? Do you, do you see that, that binding? That when, when, you, when you think light, it, it is both showing how things should be guide, but bringing real life. Light is life. And so what he says that you are the, the light of the world, he is saying that literally, like you give sight, direction, but you also give life, joy. You help people come alive again. Now, this to me is very interesting because of that John 8 piece. So Jesus in John 8, he's arguing with the Pharisees. He is unpacking, unfolding who he is and what he's came for, his sentness for them. And he makes this, he makes this daring claim. I'm the light of the world. And the backdrop of this claim was the Feast of Tabernacles, this joyous celebration where they were celebrating at the end of it. He's going to say, if anyone is still thirsty, come to me because I have life. Drink of me. But Before he gets there, he says, I'm the light of the world. It should never cease to amaze us. What that? That Jesus speaks of us in such noble ways. The one who says, I am the light of the world, turns to people and says, you are the light of the world. Guys, do you know who you are? Like who you really are apart from God. Those 2 a.m., 4 a.m. thoughts. Do you know who you are? The ways where you respond just wickedly to your children because they are bothering you. Do you know who you are? Who you are in traffic when no one really sees you? Do you know who you are when you are driving down the street and you don't want to make eye contact with that homeless person because then you'll feel responsible? Do you know who you are? Apart from the grace of God. Yet God would look at people, humans, frail, weak, foolish, wicked, and say, but do you know who you are in me? You're the light of the world. I'm the, and I, so I just, that just, for me, it's just crazy. But if you look at that John 8, 12 um, dynamic, like it keeps going because it shows us by saying, I'm the light of the, the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so it, it's this guiding towards greater life. It, it, it shows, I'm, I'm going to read it because so, I feel my eyes are sweating. And I, I, I'm, it's like, Jesus, this is the, the statement. Jesus doesn't just allow us to see life as it really is. He invites us to experience life as it's meant to be. Like by being the light of the world, he is both showing us how stuff really is. If you if you you walk into a dark room, you're bumping into randomness, and then you 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 randomly walk until you could get the light and you you turn it on, and they're like, oh snap, that wasn't a monster, that was a that was a shoe, <laughs> you know. 
um, you, you, you see stuff as it really is. That's, that's, the, that's the guiding, that's the, the sight or aspect. But it's not just seeing it. You're experiencing life as it's meant to be because he's showing how it really is. Thus, it's designed what it was made for so that you could experience. And that could go all the way from how we think about our finances to how we think about our relationships. Life as it was meant to be, light of the world. And by saying that's us, we do the same. We, in humility and courage and sincerity, we show life as it really is by how we live, inviting people to experience life as it was meant to be which is eternal, salt of the earth, light of the world. You put these together and what you see is that the significant purpose for the children of God is to be bringers of greater life. That's your purpose. That's the signature of God on your soul is to be a bringer of a greater life. It's to be a blessing. It's to be the people that when you enter the room, they're like, yeah, I was waiting for you to get here. Not like, Ugh, can you leave now? Like it's to be a, you know, those people, it's to be a bringer of greater life. Here's why I want to hammer a little bit. And then I'm going to, I'm going to land the plane with this latter part of 16. Like oftentimes what's happened is we have reduced this salt of the earth, light of the world imagery to just overtly Christian activity. Hands, hands raised singing, Bible study, evangelism. And let me tell you, those are necessary, rich things that we actually need to increase in. But when you reduce something, you're neglecting something else. Are you tracking with me? And oftentimes, it's the reducing of Christianity to these easily accomplished Christian forms that we miss out on the greatness God would have for us in our purpose and what it means to actually bring greater life to real life. It's the reason why Jesus didn't say, yo, go be Amish over there and just go hunker down and sing great songs and, and read the Bible. No, no. He says, I don't take them out of the world, nor do I pray that they be taken out of the world. I send them into it. So they bring greater life Everywhere, there's a quote um, by Dorothy Sayers. Um, Kyler actually sent this to me recently, and it was refreshing. And I was like, man, this falls right in line. I want to read it and um, read a statement. Um, here's, a, here's, a, here's a quote uh, from her book, Why Work? She's a beast. She, it says this, but is, is it astonishing? How can, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with 99 tenths of his life? That right there is amazing. Because it's true. Like, so many people have walked away from Christianity because they're like, this does nothing for my everyday life. And all it does is, is make me think about eternity, and I'm actually not even sure if that exists. So I'm out. Some of us have a version of Christianity, again, that's safe, and it's clean, and it's pretty, and it's stuck in these walls. How can anybody remain interested in that when you exist outside of these walls? You track with me? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come on church on Sundays, right? 
And that what we do? Hey, just just don't sin a lot. And when you do sin, put it in the closet so nobody sees it. And they come on church on Sundays. Make sure you give a little bit. Put your hands out here. You gotta be on Sundays because we need a full gathering so people know God's spirit is among us. What the church should be telling him, she's a beast, by the way, Dorothy Sayers, monster. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. I like that a lot. Church, by all means, and decent forms of amusement, certainly, but what use is all of that if in the very center of his life and occupation, he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked tables, table legs, or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Jesus didn't make bad tables and he was a carpenter. He had a job, all right? Let's just say that. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hands that made heaven and earth. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. I like that. Essentially, what, what she's getting at and what the scriptures get at is this idea to let God out of the box. Let him out of the box. Every square inch is the Lord's. He has complete jurisdiction. So like um, my first year in Atlanta, I was living in Fayetteville and driving to Kennesaw for work. Man, that was hard. Think living in Homestead and driving to Boca. It was crazy doing that every day, five days a week for work. One day I was in my car, Maggie, she was my Mitsubishi Galant. I love Maggie. She was the first car that I bought. So, I, you know, I, I loved her. But um, she, had, she had some issues. And so she went to get my, my you know, the battery changed. And, and the person who, who changed the battery didn't shut my hood all the way. So I was driving on the highway in Atlanta and, and my hood flew open, smashed my windshield and smashed my sunroof. And all the glass is cutting me and I'm bleeding. Yo, we were so broke that we had to keep that car. And when it rained, I like had an umbrella <laughs> driving in that joint. You know, it was, but Maggie, she got me through some times. Now, like, so as that happened, like I am, I'm sitting in my car pissed. I'm angry. All right. You know what I'm saying? Cause I'm like, man, I wish I knew Jonathan at this time. Cause I would have sued them. Right. NTB got me in trouble. But at the same time, I'm like, man, I, I had to call the ambulance. Not because I really wanted to send somebody cause I didn't want that $2,500. You know what I mean? But I wanted to document it cause I really didn't want to go to work in the first place. Have you ever had that? You know what I mean? Well, you don't want to go to work. And so you're glad that you got sick so that you could actually not lie. When you call your boss, you're like, I ain't coming today. Right. And so I, I called, I called uh, the EMTs 911 and they're like, where are you? I told them where they are. And they were like, yo, um, that's not our jurisdiction. I was like, what? What does that mean? They're like, that's not where we're able to have authority, so we're going to transfer you to somebody else. And they transferred me. Now, in the five minutes that it took for them to transfer me, I was like, man, God, thank you that I'm not dying because you couldn't send the right person. But, what they were, but essentially what they were saying is that they didn't have jurisdiction to deal with my situation. They didn't have it. And they had to turn to somebody else who did. And unfortunately for us, and what we, we, we believe that, that God's jurisdiction is just to certain places. But what this gets at, what the scriptures speak to, is that all of life is God's jurisdiction. Which means there is no aspect of our lives that God doesn't have a say in or thoughts about. 
or demands for, specifically our jobs. And so when, when we say salt, salt, salt of the earth, light of the world, it is embracing the jurisdiction that is God's, which is all of life, and saying, now I'm going to be sent into all of life to prevent decay, produce the light, give sight, and bring greater life. That means wherever you are right now, you've been sent. Not by accident. Not by coincidence. Not because you're clever. Not because you got the best grades in school. Not because you got this Miami hustle so you know how to talk real good. But because God for such a time as this has said, I am sending you to this place, to those people to bring greater life. Whether you are a carpenter, you work at a gas station, whether you are a lawyer, whether you are a doctor, whether you are an artist, whether you are a social entrepreneur, I don't care. Whatever job title you have is just a canvas for God to display his saltiness and his lightness through your life. And might I suggest that the reason why we rather keep God in this confined space, this confined box, is because we're afraid of what life would look like if we really let God in. And we really don't want him. It's not that we don't think he has thoughts. We know he has thoughts, but we really don't want him because we're comfortable being our own gods. How is that working for us? It's not. When the light comes in and it shows us that there is something deficient here, it's an opportunity to experience and then express greater life. Might I suggest that some of us aren't expressing the full scope of our saltiness and our lighthood because we are so captured by how other people are expressing their saltiness and their lighthood. I like that right over there. I like the way they're doing it right over there. Got a prof said this to me. I know he's not the first one to say it, but I'm going to give him credit for it. He said, Muchi, if God called you to be a farmer, don't you stoop so low as to be a king. Yeah. And I like that. Yeah. And I would say that to us. Whatever God has called you to be, don't you stoop so low as to be a king because you think there's a greater level of dignity. You think there's a greater level of experience. No. Joy is bound to the purpose God has given us, which is to be salt and light as children in the world. Here's where we close. It's really not just for us at all. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our saltiness, that, that beautiful light piece, isn't for us alone. It's for others. You do not exist for yourself. That is a message for our current cultural moment. You do not exist for you. Do you hear me? I do not exist for me. I exist so that people by me being faithful will thrive. I exist that by me being faithful and expressing who God has made me to be, God would be seen as glorious and beautiful. Do not exist for me. You do not exist for you. And I know that's scary. Because if I don't exist for me, who will? If I don't take care of me, who will? 
God, your father, he will. So this ending image that Jesus gives them as light is very powerful because it's tied to this background of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And oftentimes, again, we, 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 we're stuck in our cultural lenses, so we're not able to really feel the weight of this. But if I can help us feel this a little bit to give us an image that I think we should run with. There was no flashlights back in Jesus' day. <laughs> Everybody's aware of that, right? No fluorescence. Ben Franklin wasn't there yet, right? And so if they wanted light, do you know how they got it? Fire. Flames. When Jesus said this, Feast of the Tabernacles, it was a celebration of God's grace to be who he says he is and rescue. And in the midst of this celebration, there would be these four large candelabras, like essentially large candles. Um, and and they would be filled with, with so much oil. And, and the priests would, would walk through these and, and one by one would light all of these candles. And it'd be this huge burning flame that that came from each one of them. The flame would be so bright that wherever you were in Jerusalem, and even if you were approaching it, you would see it. But it would also provide warmth. And you know that if you're in a dark, cold room and there's a fireplace, fire pit, or a flashlight, you're gonna you're gonna gravitate towards one of those. Not gonna be the flashlight. It's going to be the fire pit because it's warmth, not just sight. And in all of our efforts, we have to be warmth. We have to be life. We have to rest in God's beauty, that he's that for us. And then we have to burn for God's glory, that he would be seen as that for other people. Would you pray with me, Jesus? We, um, we need you. Um, God, I just pray that we um, we would own the dignity and nobility of who you say we are. That we would be absolutely dominated by it. Not arrogantly, but with an anchored courage to go out and salt and light this entire city for your namesake. That people would see deeds that span the spectrum of Bible study and people sacrificing their time to meet with others to learn about you, to extraordinary generosity that says, I will empty my wallet for the sake of others, to being a good coworker and an excellent manager. They would see all of these deeds and you would be praised in light of it because you would be seen as God of all life. You are a father who's been good to us. And I pray that we would rest in the love that you give us, which is secure, the hope that you give us, which is strong, and the purpose that you give us, which is significant. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, we're getting ready to transition to a time of communion. Um, and as we transition to this time of communion, um, communion is an opportunity for us to remember and reflect and then to, 
to celebrate that God is not a liar. God is not a liar, man. There's so, like, like there's so many lies all around us. There's lies that we feed, feed ourselves. And whenever we enter into communion, we are, we are entering into a type of spiritual warfare where we are fighting with the truth. We are wielding truth like a sword and a scalpel saying, God, you're not a liar. God, this isn't the end. God, there's always hope. God, you remember our frame. God, you have a purpose for me. God, you love me. God, you are who you say you are. And the essence of the truthfulness of God was seen at a cross where what he promised from eternity past came to be and what he promises for eternity future will happen because of this death that was glorious and this resurrection that was even more glorious proving he's not a liar and so as we enter into this time of communion my, my, my hope our hope our prayer is that you would you would come and enjoy and celebrate but you would come and be wrecked by truth that god is everything he says he is and we could be everything he says we are so if you haven't felt like a child of god because you know your deepest thoughts you can't undo what jesus has already done and if you know you're not a child of god you know you don't know god as father this is a perfect opportunity for you to come